quick greeting to the fathers. Happy Father's Day. Um, the value of godly men parenting their children and pointing them towards the Lord is incalculable. And uh, I'm blessed to know some awesome fathers in this congregation. Um, as you know, I am a, a father of a one-year-old, but these, these men have really inspired me uh, as they follow the Lord in being godly fathers. So I want to thank you. Thank you all, uh, fathers, for leading your families well. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. You are our heavenly Father. You are our true Father, our good Father. And Lord, some of us on Father's Day, it's painful because we don't have good fathers here on earth. That's the case for many of us. And yet you are that good Father, O Lord. You are patient with us. You do not always chide. You love us. You, you look out for our best interests, and for that, we give you our thanks and praise, our almighty God. And we ask now, as we look at the word that you have given to us, that you would help us to rightly understand it with our minds, to embrace it with our hearts, and to picture it with our lives. All for your glory and kingdom. Amen. The word awesome has lost a lot of its power. Americans are infamous among Europeans for using huge adjectives to describe things, right? So for example, whereas an American might say of a restaurant, that was amazing, an Englishman who liked it just as much might say, yeah, that was all right, wasn't it? And because of our tendency to use bombastic adjectives, the word awesome seems fine, good. In a Google search on Wednesday, here were some of the things that people were calling awesome. Pitcher, Aroldis Chapman on the possibility of being reunited with the Cincinnati Reds, that would be awesome. An awesome sale on Amazon, making it a very, very good day to buy AirPods. Golden Knight Jack Eichel explains his meeting with Charles Barkley, quote, he's awesome. So the word awesome has taken on an informal meaning. It has evolved in American English, and it just means something cool. But this morning, we want to reclaim the word for what it really means, what it actually means. Something that is awesome inspires awe. It inspires wonder. And that's what we mean when we have titled this sermon, God's Awesome Deliverance. We're not just saying, hey, his deliverance is great. What we're saying is that his deliverance evokes and inspires awe in us. Or at least it ought to. I confess to you that sometimes God's deliverance doesn't strike me with the awe that it once did. I don't always think of his deliverance as awesome. And that's probably true about all of us. For if we consistently were in awe of his saving us, then we wouldn't nearly sin as much as we do. It's been well said that sin for a Christian is a result of gospel amnesia. We sin 
when we temporarily forget or suppress the incredible reality that God saved us from certain destruction. Well, what is the treatment for gospel amnesia? Meditating on the gospel. What we mean by that is thinking about it purposefully, deeply. So if you're struggling with sin, which we all are, the answer to that is you need to meditate on the gospel. Remember the awesome deliverance that God has wrought for you and then proceed to kill your sin. And even if you're in a good spot spiritually, still meditate on the gospel. Don't let yourself get into a position where you do forget it. And that's the aim of this sermon today. It's to help us meditate on God's deliverance of us and to help us to see that unlike anything that this world has to offer, his deliverance is truly awesome. It is the most awesome object to behold. So may God help us to behold his deliverance rightly. Now, before we get into the passage itself, we're going to engage in a little history lesson. Isaiah, who is the author of this book, was a Hebrew prophet who lived and worked in Jerusalem in the 8th and 7th centuries B.C., meaning the 700s, 600s before Jesus Christ. He became a prophet in the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom, the year that a great king named Uzziah died when he had a vision of God's holiness and glory in the temple. Now, after this king Uzziah died, Uzziah's son, Jotham, became king. But Jotham wasn't as strong as Uzziah, and he wasn't as successful in leading as Uzziah was. Isaiah advised Jotham and then his successor, Ahaz, to trust in God. Don't seek help from Assyria. Don't make, don't make treaties with them or other nations. Well, sadly, Ahaz didn't listen to Isaiah, and instead he did make an alliance with the nation of Assyria, which did grant him some temporary relief. But then what happened is that that made Ahaz a vassal king under the Assyrian king. Isaiah denounced that move. There wasn't supposed to be a king above him except God. And so Isaiah warned Ahaz about the consequences of it. Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, Hezekiah, he became king in 715 B.C., and he tried to reform the kingdom of Judah. And he did some good things. He, re he removed idols. He restored worship in the temple. He also stood up against Assyria, hoping that he would get help from Egypt. But what happened was that stirred up the wrath of the Assyrian king Sennacherib. And then Sennacherib, with the Assyrian army, invaded Judah in 701 B.C., laying siege to the city of Jerusalem. Isaiah encouraged Hezekiah to trust God. Don't surrender to Sennacherib. Isaiah prophesied that God would deliver Jerusalem from the Assyrian army, and he did. That was fulfilled when an angel of God struck down no less than 185,000 Assyrian soldiers overnight, forcing Sennacherib to retreat. But then King Hezekiah became ill and asked God to heal him, and God answered and he gave Hezekiah another 15 years of life. Sadly, though, Hezekiah became proud. 
and he showed off his treasures to some envoys from Babylon. Isaiah rebuked him for that foolishness, and he prophesied that what would happen is that Hezekiah's treasures that he was so proud of would be carried away into Babylon. And some of Hezekiah's descendants would become eunuchs in the palace of the Babylonian king. And sure enough, about a century later, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, rose up, conquered Jerusalem, and he took many Jews into exile, one of those being Daniel, if you know the book of Daniel. So the section of the book, starting from our passage in Isaiah 40, to the end of the book of Isaiah, is written for those exiles in Babylon. It promises comfort. It promises restoration for those who were suffering in exile. Now, some claim that Isaiah wasn't the one to write chapters 40 through 66, based largely on the fact that if you read chapter 39, it's one historical context, and then when you read chapter 40, it's a different one. Chapter 1 through 39 is mainly dealing with Judah and the nation of Assyria. Chapters 40 through 66 are mainly talking about Judah and Babylon, like 150 years later. They also point out differences in style and the fact that you never see Isaiah name himself in chapters 40 through 66. But when the New Testament quotes these later chapters, including when Jesus quotes these chapters, they attribute the words to the prophet Isaiah, which is good enough for us to affirm that Isaiah wrote the whole thing. And one of the motivations, by the way, for claiming that these chapters were written later is because they so accurately foretell God's deliverance of his people from exile in Babylon, down to naming Cyrus as the king of Persia, whom God would use to conquer Babylon. It was so accurate, surely he couldn't have written it till after, or surely it couldn't have been written till after, they say. And they do the same thing with the book of Daniel, by the way. Daniel so accurately foretells future events that skeptics have to say Daniel was written after those events took place. So accurate is God's word. But we believe in a God who is the beginning and the end and can tell his people what is going to happen 150 years ahead of time. We believe that all of Isaiah was written before the Babylonian exile and would have been used by God's people during the exile for encouragement and hope. So that brings us to our passage this morning. In Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 8, we are going to behold together God's awesome deliverance. And we're going to make four observations that highlight how awesome God's deliverance is. And the first one is this. God's tender comfort. God's tender comfort. Look at verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Note first that word comfort. It isn't just soothing the people in their pain. What God is going to do is not just commiserate with them. He's going to promise them deliverance. He's strengthening them. He's encouraging them and he's reassuring them. He is going to announce to them that their exile is now over. And their sins are forgiven. The word comfort here is a word of God's grace, a word of God's mercy. We saw quite a bit of this regarding our own situation, our own exile, 
as we went through the book of 1 Peter, right? Peter didn't just say, hey, it's okay. No, he gave Christians a view of the future that was meant to comfort them. That's what's going on here, too. We see the word not only once, but twice in that verse. Comfort, comfort. We see in its repetition a sense of urgency, a sense of emphasis. God is eager to comfort his people. He tells Isaiah, comfort my people. In chapter 39, chapter before, Isaiah prophesied judgment, and now God would have Isaiah prophesy comfort. Comfort. See also the beauty of God's calling them his people. Look again at verse 1. Comfort my people. These people whom God is comforting had rebelled against him. They had broken his covenant. They worshipped idols. They committed injustice. They ignored his warnings. They rejected his prophets. They brought on this judgment and exile on themselves. They had no claim or merit on their own to be called God's people. But God did not cast them off. He did not forget them. He still loved them and called them, verse 1 says, my people. Oh, the grace and faithfulness of our God. Notice also the phrase, says your God. Says your God. There are at least a couple of notable observations we can make about this phrase, says your God. First, it shows that God himself is the one who gives this comfort. This comfort. It wasn't Isaiah giving comfort. It was God himself through the prophet Isaiah giving comfort. And second, it shows here that God's relationship with his people remained intact. Not only was God still willing to identify them as his people, but he was also willing to continue to identify himself as their God. He was still their God. They had turned to other gods, false as the other gods were, but God is the true and living God, and he was still their God. This is all God's faithfulness a faithfulness that we can trace throughout the Old Testament. Genesis 17, 7, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generation for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Exodus 6, 7, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Jeremiah 31, 33, talking about the new covenant, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Ezekiel 36, 28, you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Friends, God is faithful to his people even when they're unfaithful to him. Thus, okay, well, God is faithful to his people even when they are unfaithful to him. And thus he says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. How marvelous is our faithful God. And then God tells Isaiah in the beginning of verse 2, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. Isaiah was to speak tenderly 
on God's behalf. He was to speak to their hearts, to the very cores of their being. Isaiah was to speak with gentleness, kindness, and compassion. He was to express to God's people God's concern, his love, and his care. This word tenderly is a word of affection from God to his people. Affection. And again, they did not deserve that in the slightest, and neither do we. Isaiah was to speak tenderly, verse 2 says, to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is named here specifically because it was the capital. It was the center of God's people, Israel. This was the city that God associated with. This is the city where his temple and his throne were established, where worship of him was set up. Jerusalem here in this verse stands as just representative of all of God's people who were in Babylonian exile, who were in exile in Babylon. And Isaiah was to speak tenderly to Jerusalem, verse 2, and cry to her that her warfare is ended. Isaiah was not only to speak to her, but to cry to her. His announcement was to be loud. It implies urgency, importance. It also may imply a sense of joy and celebration, cry out. We're going to see this word a few other times in this passage, but this cry of God's comfort is not a whisper. It is a loud and clear declaration of God's mercy on them. First Baptist Church of the Lakes, behold God's tender comfort on his people. By God's grace, we who believe in him have also been made his people. We were not a people, but now we are God's people. And he has tenderness toward us. Isn't that amazing? Tenderness. He is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He is a faithful and merciful God who does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. He is a loving and forgiving God who removes our transgressions from us as far as the east is from the west. He is a sovereign and mighty God who works all things together for good for we who love him and are called according to his purposes He loved us in such a way that he gave his only son for us, that whoever believes in his son will not perish, but have eternal life. Further, he is a comforting and empowering God. He sent us the comforter, the Holy Spirit himself, to dwell in us, to guide us into all truth. God is never going to leave or forsake us. All of his promises are yes and amen in Christ. God is tender toward his people. He will never stop loving us. He will never stop caring for us. How will we respond to the tenderness of our God toward us? And not only is God tender toward us, but he tenderly comforts us still. He comforts us still tenderly. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, 
who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with a comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. He consoles us in our afflictions. He heals and mends our broken hearts. He is our shepherd who leads us beside still waters and restores our soul. He is the hope of the hopeless, giving us hope through the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. How great is God's tender comfort toward his people? Does anyone need to hear that this morning? God comforts us. He is tender toward us. Does that not amaze you? We don't deserve it in the slightest. Like Israel before us, we are prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. We are prone to leave the God we love. And still he is our God. And we are his people. Still he speaks tenderly toward us. He comforts us in our afflictions. How awesome indeed is God's tender comfort toward his people. So we've seen God's tender comfort. Praise God. Next we see number two, God's finished punishment. God's finished punishment. Look at verse two again. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So Isaiah was to cry to the people that her warfare is ended. Other translations say her hard service has been completed or her sad days are gone, etc. And the idea here is that her time of suffering and hardship is over. She no longer has to endure the consequences of rebelling against her God. The time of God's discipline was over, and he was ready to restore her. Specifically, what he's saying is that he's going to take them now out of exile from Babylon. He's going to bring them out of there and back to their land. And so what's happened here is that in chapter 39... Isaiah prophesies the Babylonian exile, and then the perspective jumps to chapter 40, about 150 years. Remember, Isaiah was written in the 700s BC, so chapter 39 was for God's people before the exile, uh, and chapter 40 was for God's people during the exile. It was for them during the exile, long before it actually happened. He foretold of the troubles his people would have and then he gave them the words that they would need in order to be encouraged during that time. And the word of God functions for us in the same way. The Bible foretells that in this world we will have trouble. But it also gives us everything that we need to endure and face the trials that we have. This word that was written ahead of time would have encouraged the people during the exile and it would have encouraged the people towards the end of the exile. So God also tells Isaiah to tell those at the end of the exile, her iniquity is pardoned. Jerusalem's iniquity is pardoned. What is iniquity? Iniquity is talking about sin. Transgression from God's law. Wickedness. That's iniquity. It's referring to the disobedience of God's people against his law. 
God's law is his will. And their iniquity, their sin, is what caused them to be exiled from their land and brought into Babylon. But here in verse 2, we see that her iniquity is pardoned. It's forgiven. God has removed their iniquity and the consequences of their iniquity by his grace and his mercy. He is restoring their relationship with them. I'm sorry, their relationship with him. He then tells Isaiah to tell them in verse 2 that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, what does it mean that she has received something from the Lord's hand? What it means is that what they experienced in Babylon was not merely of Babylon. What they experienced was from God himself. It was God's judgment on them. It was from his hand itself. God disciplined and corrected her for her rebellion and for her disobedience. God had measured out the discipline that he was going to give, and then he doled it out on them, and the discipline was now complete. But what does it mean that he gave them double for all her sins, verse 2? What that doesn't mean is that Judah was punished twice as much as she deserved because that would be unjust. God judges justly, and sin will be punished exactly as much as it deserves. On the contrary, Ezra 9.13 says of this whole exile, Ezra 9.13, After all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, we have seen that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved. He punished them less. So the saying double for all her sins is just a manner of speaking, meaning she's been punished enough. She's received enough punishment. But how can that be? How can it be that God punished them enough for their sins if the true punishment for sin is eternal wrath? Well, here it's helpful for us to understand the nature of God's covenant with them and the nature of this particular deliverance of them. You see, the covenants that God made with Abraham and Moses were about Abraham's descendants being God's nation here on earth and given a land to live in, provided that they kept their end of the covenant. If they broke God's covenant, then they would lose their right to live in the land, which is why it was just for that first generation that came out of Egypt to not be allowed to enter into the promised land. And this is why these people, in our context in Isaiah 40, were removed from their land and brought into Babylon for exile. They had broken God's covenant. Mercifully, however, God didn't just completely cut them off. Instead, he punished them with a 70-year exile, and he was now going to bring them back into the land. In God's sight, in his economy, the punishment that they received was enough for them to be welcomed back into the land. This is not the same, however, as being welcomed into heaven. Our sins deserve far worse than being exiled somewhere for 70 years. Our sins deserve hell, which is essentially God's wrath for all eternity. So, whereas the punishment that Israel received was enough for them to re-enter the promised land. 
No punishment that we could receive would ever allow us to go into the greater promised land, heaven. Which is why, besides the fact that purgatory is never mentioned in scripture, purgatory makes no sense. When would be enough for it to pay for your sins? Or no punishment that we could receive would ever allow us to go into the greater promised land. But God made a way for us to enter. And the way that he did it was not by punishing us, but by punishing his own son instead. This is what it means that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He gave his only son to be punished in our place. And the son went willingly for us. He went willingly. Jesus says in John 10, 17 through 18, that no one takes his life from him, but he lays it down of his own accord. It says in Philippians 2, 8, that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Hebrews 12, 2 says that he endured the cross for the joy set before him. In other words, Jesus was not an unwilling participant in our redemption. Like maybe an animal sacrifice might have been under the old covenant. Jesus is the perfect lamb of the new covenant who took the punishment that we deserve on himself. So whereas Israel was punished in order to be welcomed back into the promised land, Christ, the true Israel, was punished in order to bring us into the true promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. Oh, how awesome is the deliverance of our God as is seen in the punishment that we deserve. Here is how Isaiah is going to describe what Jesus did for us in chapter 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. We deserve to be pierced. We deserve to be crushed. We deserve chastisement. We deserve the wounds. But Jesus took all of those on himself for us. It is finished. How awesome is his deliverance of us through his son. So we've seen God's tender comfort and God's finished punishment. And next we see number three, God's glorious arrival. God's glorious arrival. Verse three says, a voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. This voice, which is identified as announcing the coming of the Lord. The Lord was coming to rescue them out of Babylon. He was going to bring them back to their homeland. Who is this voice addressing in this verse? Everyone and everything. God was coming. Make way. In London, if soldiers are marching from one place to another and people are standing in their way, the soldiers will cry out, make way for the king's guard. Doesn't matter if you're English or not, that message is a warning. Get out of the way. And similarly, when the voice cries out, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, the idea is make way for Yahweh. He is arriving. 
The phrase, the wilderness here, is referring to this desert region between the Euphrates River and Judah. This is where God had led out his people before, and he was coming to do it once again. The second part of verse 3 says, Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. What this voice is calling for is for every obstacle to be removed and for a smooth and clear path for God. Now what this verse is not implying is that things need to be moved out of God's way before he can come. God can go anywhere he pleases and do whatever he wants. Instead, what we're seeing here is a phrase that was common among kings in Isaiah's time who would send forerunners ahead of them to remove any impediments to the king. It's not because the king was unable to step over objects. It was in honor of the king. Nothing was to be in the way of the king. When it comes to God, it's not just a tiny rock or a tree here or there that needs to get out of the way. We're talking major land formations here. Verse 4, every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. Valleys, you know, you live in the Las Vegas Valley. Valleys are low, sunken areas that are surrounded by higher ground. Those valleys would be lifted up to make flat ground. So just imagine in your mind the Grand Canyon suddenly lifting up in order to make everything flat. That's the picture that's being given here. And similarly, verse 4 continues, every mountain and hill shall be made low. So again, imagine someone going ahead of God and knocking down all the mountains standing in his way. Imagine Mount Everest standing in God's way and crumbling to the ground in order to make a highway for God. To make the picture complete, verse 4 continues, The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. Why all the hullabaloo? God was coming to get them. Now, there was no physical fulfillment of this because God is not a physical being needing objects moved out of his way. The whole point of this verse is, these verses are, Judah, your suffering is over. Your king is coming for you. Earth, make way for the king. The first part of verse 5 then says this, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. There was about to be a divine manifestation of God's glory and power. His presence and splendor were going to be made known to everyone. This wouldn't be the first time that this happened, by the way. Forty years after God led Israel out of Egypt, Rahab, a woman who was living in Jericho, this is what she said, In Joshua 2, 9 through 11. I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you and when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, 
to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Rahab had heard of Yahweh's glory. For it was revealed not only to Israel, but to all the nations. God would once again reveal his glory in delivering his people this time out of Babylon. Everyone would see his glory. He was going to release his people from their exile and allow them to go back into their homeland. He would then see to it that Jerusalem and its walls and the temple would be reconstructed against all odds. Not only would Israel behold God's glory, not just Israel, but all flesh would see it together. The nations around them would also hear about Judah's release and restoration. And it would be a testament to God's faithfulness and power toward them to the whole world. God was coming to deliver them, and he would arrive gloriously. He would demonstrate his sovereignty over nations, including Babylon and even the nation that would topple it, Persia. He would also demonstrate his power over those nations that would oppose the rebuilding of Jerusalem. He would restore his people after their exile, and no one could stop it. How glorious was God's arrival. How awesome was his rescue. Still, did this point to something greater? Mark 1, verses 2 through 4 says this. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send messenger, my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John the Baptist in the time of Jesus, was the voice crying out in the wilderness. He was the forerunner of King Jesus, announcing the king's arrival, and nothing was going to get in the way. Jesus was born in an animal's feeding trough. Could an infant get sick and die under those conditions? Not if God's will was for that baby to survive. Then the jealous King Herod wanted all the baby boys killed. Could that have thwarted God's plan? No. God warned Joseph in a dream, and he thus called his son out of Egypt. Christ's opponents wanted to throw him off a cliff. Couldn't do it. They tried to discredit him. Couldn't do it. His disciples over and over again misunderstood him. One of his disciples even betrayed him for money. Did that thwart God's plan? No. Nothing was going to get in the way of the king's delivering his people. And in an even greater way than the exodus, in an even greater way than the Babylonian exile, the glory of the Lord was revealed in Jesus Christ. Because this time, God didn't merely take his people out of one nation and bring them into a promised land. 
This time, he took his people out of the domain of darkness and brought them into his marvelous light. He freed them from the prison of sin and gave them freedom. He took them out of death and gave them eternal life. All of the other deliverances in the Bible, amazing as they are, pointed forward to this great deliverance wrought by none other than God himself. This time, God didn't send King Cyrus of Persia who would act in King Cyrus' best interest. This time, he sent King Jesus of heaven who would act in our best interest. Yes, in Christ, the glory of the Lord was revealed. And furthermore, all flesh has seen it together. The news of Jesus started in Jerusalem and quickly spread throughout the whole Roman Empire and beyond. It is estimated that there are 2.3 billion Christians worldwide. How many of those truly believe in Jesus? God only knows. But one thing is for sure, they have heard of Jesus. Christianity is found in almost every country in the world. It is believed on every continent. The Bible is available in over 700 languages, with portions of it translated into thousands of additional languages. And while there is yet more work to do, many more unreached languages to reach, Christ's message has spread all over the world. The glory of the Lord has been revealed, and all flesh sees it together. How awesome has been God's glorious arrival. He has come to save his people, and word of that has spread all over the world and continues to spread, and nothing can stop it. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level in the rough places of plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. So we've seen God's awesome deliverance and his tender comfort, his finished punishment, and his glorious arrival. We also see it in number four, God's certain salvation. God's certain salvation. Notice the end of verse five. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The reason that nothing would get in God's way, no valley, no mountain, the reason that nothing would get in God's way is that he had spoken. What had he spoken? That Jerusalem's warfare was ended, that her iniquity was pardoned, that she had received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And implied in that is that he was now going to deliver them out of their exile in Babylon. He had spoken it, and therefore it would be accomplished. Verse 6 continues, a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. Again, this voice is unidentified. It doesn't really matter who cried it. But the message that is to be cried is that, verse 6, all flesh is grass. This is talking about how human life is transient. It's fragile. Even the mighty king of Babylon 
and his great nation were grass. Verse 6 continues, And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. Just as humanity is like grass, so are all of humanity's beauty and accomplishments. How glorious and beautiful was the Babylonian Empire. Where is it now? How marvelous and beautiful is America. It's currently decked out in all the colors of the rainbow. Where will it be in 10,000 years? All flesh is grass, and it's all its beauty is like the flower of the field. And guess what? Verse 7, the grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of Yahweh blows on it. Surely the people are grass. Grass loses its vitality. Grass eventually dies. The same is true for people. The same is true for empires even. The flower fades. Flowers are beautiful, but they lose their beauty. They too, even the most beautiful flowers, eventually wither away. Human achievements are temporary. And it's not just time that causes grass to wither and flowers to fade, but the very breath of God. When he blows on grass, it withers. When he blows on flowers, they fade. In the context of empires, empires are powerful and beautiful only as long as God wills that to be the case. Empires have risen and fallen. All according to God's sovereign will, surely the people are grass. Then verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Egypt rose and fell. Assyria rose and fell. Babylon too rose, but was soon to fall. Even Persia would rise and fall. And then Greece, and then Rome. And after Rome, empires have risen and fallen. The grass withers and the flower fades. But do you know what doesn't wither? Do you know what doesn't fade? The word of our God. Everything he speaks stands forever. Psalm 118, 89 says this, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Jesus, who some people claim never claimed to be God, says in Matthew 24, 35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. 1 Peter 1.25 says, But the word of the Lord remains forever. And certainly this was true of God's promise to deliver his people out of Babylon. Remember that God spoke these words through Isaiah 150 years before the people even went into captivity. God promised to deliver his people long before they were even captured. And because he had promised to do so, he would surely do it. His promises are sure. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he not said, or rather, has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Friends, Brothers and sisters, God's salvation is certain. 
Anyone who tries to get in the way of God's salvation will fail. God is going to say in Isaiah 43, 13, There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Sure enough, we know in history that God did deliver his people out of Babylonian captivity. He did restore them to his holy city, Jerusalem. Our salvation is in the same way certain. Genesis 3.15, God promised the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. In Genesis 12.3, God promised that blessing would come to all nations through a descendant of Abraham. In 2 Samuel 7.12-13, God promised that a descendant of David would establish an eternal kingdom. In Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, God promised to make a new covenant with his people. What might have gotten in the way of all of that? Could the utter wickedness of man before the flood get in the way of that? Could the Tower of Babel get in the way of that? Could a seven-year famine get in the way of that? Could the enslavement of Israel in Egypt get in the way of that? Could Israel's persistent rebellion against God get in the way of that? Could their exile in Babylon get in the way of that? No. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And he accomplished exactly what he said he would accomplish in all of those promises in the scripture. Jesus Christ is the snake crusher. Jesus Christ is the seed of Abraham through whom all nations are blessed. Jesus Christ is the descendant of David who will sit on David's throne forever. Jesus Christ is the one who ratified the new covenant with his own blood. God's salvation was and is certain. And as we've been talking about in 1 Peter, our deliverance has only been accomplished part of the way. Romans 8.23 says that we groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. In one sense, we have already been adopted, but there is another sense that we are still waiting for that adoption and the redemption of our bodies. Hebrews 9.28 says that he will come again to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And 1 Peter describes us as exiles waiting to be brought home. But brothers and sisters, our Lord has spoken. He will deliver us out of exile. He will bring us all the way home. He has spoken. Will he not surely do it? How awesome is God's deliverance. In the same way that he promised to bring them out of Babylon, he has promised that he will bring us out of this world. And just as he accomplished the end of the Babylonian exile, so God has already secured the end of ours. He gave his only son to die on the cross for sinners like you and me, securing our salvation. And when he comes again, he will put all the nations under his feet. He will exalt his people. 
and with glorified bodies, he will bring them into their eternal dwelling with him. How awesome is God's deliverance. We've seen God's tender comfort, God's finished punishment, God's glorious arrival, and God's certain salvation. And through these observations, we have concluded this, God is awesome. And his deliverance is awesome. Now, what shall we do with these things? First, be delivered by God. You cannot save yourself, dear friend. You, like all of us, have sinned against this holy God. But God has done everything that is required for sinners to be delivered. He gave his only son to pay for the sins of all those who believe in him. Place your trust in Jesus Christ, and your deliverance will be certain. Second, brothers and sisters, keep your eyes on this deliverance. Consider God's track record of accomplishing his promises and be comforted that he is going to accomplish every single one. Though our exile is long and tiring, just remember he's going to bring us out at just the right time. And thirdly, stand firm. Stand firm. The word of God is going to stand forever. Stand on it. He will not fail. And finally, proclaim this deliverance to the nations. Just as John the Baptist announced the first coming of our Lord, we are now the voice in the wilderness, preparing the way for his second coming. The time is now to let the world know that there is salvation found in Jesus Christ. And when he returns, all who believe in him will be delivered. Be the voice that cries out in the wilderness that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. Behold God's awesome deliverance. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the eyes to see. We recognize that the only reason that we find any of this amazing is because you have given us new hearts, new eyes, new tastes. And Lord, it is good. And we pray that you'd help us to not only think of these things now, but help us to meditate on these things so that when we're tempted to sin or when we're tempted to faint in our trials, that instead we would think on the incredible deliverance that you have wrought for us. Thank you, O Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.